0: The TNT Shop has great gift ideas for your furry family member. And we don't mean your Aunt Dolores. You stink. The TNT Shop has it all. At TNTRadio.live. Patrick Henningsen and TNT.
1: All right, welcome to the program welcome to the program ladies and gentlemen this tuesday we're live and direct for the next two hours here at tnt today's news talk i'm patrick kenningsen your host thank you guys for joining us today we've got a pretty informative and powerful show again lined up for you today hello to everybody in the tnt chat community great to see you guys uh in there and gathering and coalescing around the most important stories of the day that's where you want to be during the program, you can access the chat room via the TNT app, which you can download from Google Play or the Apple Store. TNT Radio app is live and ready to rock. You can get to the chat room there or via the URL TNTRadio.live and just go down to the lower right-hand corner, you'll see the red chat bubble. Just click on that. Log in, it'll keep you logged in. Keep your details uh, on the sort of credentials. You'll be able to get in there seamlessly day in, day out. That's where you wanna be during the program. Uh, In the first hour, uh, we're gonna be joined by a published author Uh, who also has a program on this network, Paley uh, Nuroth taylor is going to be joining us uh, in the first hour to discuss uh, the very precarious uh, situation of Ukraine. Uh, There's a lot of interesting angles that have emerged and a lot of problems that are arising uh, for the regime in Kiev, but also for their sponsors and backers, namely the United States and Britain. Uh, In the rest of NATO, for that matter. We'll look at the various problems here and uh, where things are going to be heading uh, in the near future. We'll talk to uh, Paley about that. Uh, Very interested in his uh, take and commentary on this for sure. And in the second hour, we're going to be joined by writer Blake Lovewell, uh, who has penned an excellent piece, which we published up at 21stCenturyWire.com. It's called World War Grift. Who is driving the global defense racket? Very informative piece. Uh, I do encourage people to go read that. It's up at 21st Century Wire right now. Uh, Grab that link. Drop it into the chat room if you're able to. It's a very good read by Blake. And he breaks down what is really driving this global defense system, this racket, this economy. And it seems to be that the mask is coming off. Uh, especially following this latest foray uh, in the Middle East. And they're openly admitting now saying the quiet part out loud, which is that this is all about jobs back at home. This is good for business. Uh, Who cares about the devastation that it wreaks abroad, uh, the lives, the suffering? It doesn't matter. What matters is jobs back at home. So this is the sort of more craven Uh, rhetoric that's now coming out into the open in the US. And again, I chalk this down to what I call late stage empire. Uh, These are the sort of things where they're not even pretending anymore, and people are just kind of openly admitting that's what it is. So we'll talk to Blake about that in the second hour. Looking forward to that conversation. It's an excellent piece, really fantastic article by Blake. Uh, And then Basil Valentine, our intrepid correspondent, has very important updates from the Middle East. There's a major diplomatic crisis brewing. At the moment, the the issue of aid is becoming a real problem, Uh, getting aid to the people of Gaza. There is aid uh, that's being held up right now uh, by Israeli settlers. Uh, They're ransacking aid convoys. There's videos circulating now uh, right across the media. It's the most incredible situation. Uh, And they're saying that the food, the medical supplies can't get to the two plus million people in Gaza because it will fall into the hands of Hamas and uh, then they won't get their hostages back, etc. cetera. So these are clearly talking points, completely outrageous uh, on many levels. But to see people preventing humanitarian aid from going in after a full blockade after four months, it is a little bit extreme to say the least. And it's not going to help Israel in the case that's in the international courts of justice for genocide because these are genocidal activities and the government and the military uh, in Israel are not doing anything to prevent settlers from blocking aid deliveries to the people of Gaza who are starving, who are dying, uh, who don't have many working hospitals or medical care facilities left because they've all been bombed and targeted. So they're relying on these aid deliveries. And as we had uh, our guest uh, recently, Leila Hitoum who was in Jordan recently promoting the idea of airdrops uh, to Gaza. And the Jordanian government is doing this. They've actually done a joint drop with the government of the Netherlands. So they managed to, through this campaign, uh, led by a number of uh, activists uh, who went to Jordan actually to promote this solution, or at least it's not really a solution, it's a kind of interim solution. Uh, Other countries have taken notice and have come in and gone in a joint venture with the jordanians uh to do that and that's with the royal Hashemite hospital the jordanian hospitals that are uh, located in gaza they're going to collect the airdrops and then they're going back and providing uh what aid they can with whatever delivered so uh, there is aid uh, but it's being held up or it's just not being able to be accessed for security reasons on the Israeli side and literally Israeli citizens preventing the aid from going to the Palestinians. Honestly, you couldn't make it up. What's getting interesting though is on the boycott divestment sanctions front. McDonald's, Starbucks say the Gaza conflict is hurting their business, but they're also claiming that they don't support Israel. It's an interesting situation that's brewing now with these boycotts and the fast food giants Like McDonald's, Starbucks as well, have faced boycotts, full boycotts in Muslim countries over their support or their perceived support for Israel. Now, in the case of McDonald's, they absolutely 100 percent have backing the IDF, providing free food uh, in the wake of the uh, military operation in Gaza that, of course, did not sit well uh, right across the Middle East and the Arab world. And many franchises are closing down. Uh, as a result, Starbucks is a different story. While Starbucks doesn't, it's not a, it's not a uh, Israeli company. Uh, they don't specifically support Israel, but they attacked their staff. The union of Starbucks employees uh, opposed Israel, wanted to support Palestine, and uh, were threatening to. Boycott, I believe, or uh, basically strike or in some fashion, unless the company took some measures to divest or something like this. And uh, Starbucks uh, management and the board came down pretty hard on their employees. That story went viral quite early. And so that means that Starbucks has this perception of being pro-Israel. So the both these companies, their revenues have been hit fairly hard. Shares have fallen. Uh, McDonald's shares fell four uh, percent following various reports uh, right out of the Middle East. So globally as well, sales are down. Uh, ditto for Starbucks. So whole markets appear to have closed uh, to these companies uh, merely for their perceived support of Israel. So it is interesting. There's also an interesting development with the uh, app called no thanks uh, which is circulating on x twitter uh, and other social media platforms interesting app this is out of palestine Uh, it's designed to help people to boycott certain companies and products but also how to donate and get food to people who need it in gaza it's a very interesting program a very interesting campaign we may try to get one of their founders On the program this week Uh, so that's something we are working on behind the scenes Uh, it's very difficult to run anything in and out of this area because it's under a complete blockade so it is interesting and it is very encouraging to see that people are still trying to find loopholes uh, to do that we've had a few on the program we'll continue to do that certainly it's a point of interest so uh, speaking of partitions uh, speaking of uh, separate states and uh, the instability of uh, geopolitics comes close to home in britain the uk dismissed calls for an irish unity vote so the nationalist party or it's not quite the nationalist party that it once was Sinn fein uh has said the decision on ireland's reunification is quote within reaching distance or touching distance. And Rishi Sunak, the appointed UK prime minister, downplayed suggestions that a referendum uh, on Irish unity is forthcoming. He may be correct there. It may be quite a ways off, probably years off, in fact. But they are talking about it, and it is extremely interesting, especially after Sinn Féin's Michelle O'Neill last week became the first Northern Ireland first nationalist, first minister since the partition of Ireland uh, more than a century ago. So she's talk, talking about a new dawn for Northern Irish politics, and there's a lot of talk of unification. This is an interesting situation because both in, in Britain, or the United Kingdom, Northern Ireland, and then Southern Ireland, the Republic of Ireland, which is in the EU, you do have the Sinn Féin party in both of these countries the both of these areas so this is uh they have both feet in both camps uh so that is definitely one of the i, I would think precursors for a uh, successful unification referendum down the road but at the end of the day this has become more of a generational issue as young generations um shed the baggage of their forefathers and look ahead into the future and do not necessarily identify with the same issues that their uh, parents, grandparents, or great-grandparents uh, had to deal with. And they just see the future as like, why not? Why can't we have a united Ireland? Let's move forward. Uh, so that's a very much popular among the young generation uh, in the Republic, uh, as well as in Northern Ireland, becoming more and more the case. I think we see similar uh, trends afoot, although maybe on a longer trajectory in a place like Israel with the occupied territories, young Israelis, the next generation, who knows what their attitude is going to be, especially uh, in the aftermath of the horrors of the last four months. They may have a very different attitude uh, towards the system that Netanyahu uh has held into place and then Ariel Sharon before him and sort of the hardened uh fighters who established the state of Israel in 1948 so attitudes change times change and borders may change as well we will see it's going to be very interesting to say the least let's take a break here with TNT today's news talk I'm Patrick Henningsen your host we'll be back after these messages with Paley Neurov Taylor to talk about the increasingly precarious situation in Ukraine and much much more stay right there
2: TNT's Jeremy Nell. nice comment here from Rebecca She says the youngest people um, I work with are a bit more mature But their interactions with the public is stifled and she's referring to the excessive use of cell phones and social media and how It's making them so antisocial. also The business is open six days a week One of his staff members formally requested that they shouldn't, you know, that they could they be given permission not to have to work on Wednesdays so that they could help at the dog shelter. Now, as you know, I'm a dog lover. I have hunting dogs. I've got dogs coming out of my ears, my Malinois, and this dog, this Malinois, is bright even by Malinois standards. She can do crossword puzzles, is lying under my desk at the moment, feeling sorry for herself because she's just come on heat for the first time and she's completely bewildered. She doesn't know why she's bleeding to death. It's not about whether it's a good or a bad thing to work at animal shelters. That's a delightful thing. It's a noble thing to do. But who in their right minds goes to their boss and says, would you mind? I'd rather not work on Wednesdays if it's okay because I've got other priorities in a a town down the road.
0: Jeremy Nell on today's News Talk. TNT.
3: When you can point me to an industry to a platform that reaches 250 million people a month, virtually nine out of 10 Americans, that's real, that's substantive. That's important and that reach and that touch point and that daily reinforcement. It's an amazing place to be able to communicate messages.
0: That's massive. To find out more, go to tntradio.live. If you're still wearing a cloth or surgical mask around in public, you're guilty of spreading COVID misinformation. It really is that simple. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT
1: welcome back welcome back ladies and gentlemen to tnt today's news talk we're still in hour number one of this live broadcast we're going to pivot over to uh, european affairs well really hardcore geopolitics and ukraine is at the center of the conversation once again we've had a respite with the middle east the conversation has shifted away from Ukraine, but it's back to Ukraine again. I want to welcome onto the program a, a fellow host on the network uh, at TNT, Pelé Nuarth-Taylor. He's joining us from Sweden uh, on the live link right now to discuss this increasingly precarious situation in Ukraine. Pelé, welcome to the program.
4: Thanks, Patrick. Yeah, I mean... Um... There's a, a crisis in Kiev at the moment. No, I don't know exactly what's going on. I checked Twitter before I came on. And uh, mm. there seems to be a sort of uh, a, a, a war over what's going to happen next with Ukraine having failed uh, militarily. And um, the uh, there's a sort of uh, personality and uh, political crisis between uh, Zaluzhny, who's the head of the military forces, and Zelensky, who's the uh, head of the political side, and I, I think that I was reading uh, that the famous uh, journalist Seymour Hirsch, who's been around since the 1960s, and has this blog which a lot of people consult. Although I'm not entirely sure if he sort of fed lies by his friends in the CIA or whether it's true or not. But anyway, uh, in his take, on his take, uh, Zaluzhny, having been fed up with these enormous death figures that Ukrainians suffering. know they're putting the average age of the uh, fighter in ukraine is in his mid-40s and you see people as old as 70 fighting on the front lines and um there was um the battalion commanders are lieutenants i mean normally you have a lieutenant colonel but these are lieutenants so in 25 year olds 28 year olds in charge of a battalion which means a severe depletion of officers and without officers you can't run run an army and uh there's much talk of a general mobilisation, which will, uh, in my view, throw even more Ukrainians into the meat grinder. And uh, Zelensky's got very much his eye on Western opinion. He's a politician, an actor out of his fingertips. He knows what looks good. And he wants to promote this idea that uh, Ukraine will never surrender, whereas Zelensky is more of a sort of, you know, armed forces man. He looks he's a realist, I think. And he doesn't I don't think, according to the Seymour Hersh thing, he's been talking behind or possibly with uh, Putin's foreknowledge, with the the commander of the russian forces gerasimov but behind zelensky's back so it's a triangular thing putin's in on it uh, gerasimov's in on it and Zeluzhny's is in on it and perhaps the west is in on it but, but zelensky doesn't want to hear any of this he wants to kind of ceasefire to spare the ukrainian armed forces now if zelensky does fire uh Zeluzhny, my interpretation and, and replaces him with this guy called uh, budanov who's the a sort of special forces guy and head of the military intelligence a kind of assassin death squad kind of guy who was rumoredly killed a few months ago when uh, the uh, ukrainian military intelligence headquarters were missiled in kiev and there's this meme floating around with budanov's head popping up in all kinds of different places it's kind of a joke who knows if it was orchestrated from the west or, or from russia itself anyway he's very much alive although apparently he was wounded so he survived that, um, and I think he was airlifted to Berlin. And he's but he's back in action now. And he has this kind of fearsome, formidable reputation. I think on both sides as a, a man who plots a lot of these assassination plots in uh, uh, successful assassinations in Russia, some of the missile attacks in Crimea, and sort of general troublemaking. And what worries me is if if um, Zalushny is fired and replaced by Budanov or Budanov somehow gets a more prominent role in, in the, in the Ukrainian war fighting, we'll, we'll, we'll have both, we'll have more assassinations and more provocations against Russia. And what I fear is this has to be seen in the light of the fact that the British and the Swedes and maybe other countries have had this war scare for the last two or three weeks where, uh, famous, well-known British journalists who I suspect have good ties with MI6, who are the prime betas of the russians in my view uh, have been saying war is coming there's no question about it and the daily telegraph has been running the war mongers paper extraordinaire because it's read by old colonels uh, has been talking about um has been talking about conscription issues and r- published letters by former generals and yesterday in the most egregious example was when they had a big article about 102 year old spitfire pilot which is fine i mean a great story about how old people can overcome their old age and do youthful things. Mm. But I mean, he'd been last been flying a Spitfire 80 years ago. But it's appealing to this very big weakness in the British psyche that they always have to go back to their finest hour when they were fighting dictators from the beaches and in the skies. And it's sort of whipping up the very unenthusiastic British public for a war against Russia. And what I worry is that something like this is going to happen that uh, Budanov plots. I mean his death squads could actually take them they could go around Europe you know I mean either with or without the local intelligence services for knowledge. It's easy to smuggle weapons, they could pick up weapons locally locally. they could easily assassinate a Swedish leader or a Dutch leader or something like that. and of course a Ukrainian can easily pass off as a Russian. so they either and that could either been sec, um, uh, approved prior approved by by the British and Americans. Or it could simply be the Ukrainians going rogue because they want to provoke a war, a third world war. So we've got a lot, a lack of control, even assuming that the British are responsible, which I'm not sure they are. uh, The Ukrainians could promise one thing and go much further if they were desperate enough to provoke a war. So say they assassinate a Swedish leader on the street because there's still no security in Sweden. Suddenly we have this shock and awe from the British media about Russia doing this. And we're suddenly in a war with Russia. And I don't think that, um, I mean, because on the the military side, we've got years before the West can catch up. uh, And uh, they're facing a very, very reluctant Western public. So even though people like the German Defence Minister and the British are talking about conscription and war, I mean, people in the West don't take it seriously. But having seeded and planted that idea that war is coming, and then this sudden attack happens, people... We might have this sudden emotional rush to war, but it will be a phony war like in 1939. But that phony war, which will be perhaps... It won't be... They'll try to keep it at a low enough temperature uh, so that um, it won't be nuclear to lull people into it. And then followed by a very uh, rapid conscription, and rep- And that'll be the impetus that is currently lacking. Now, I want to let you know that I don't have any proof of this, Okay. I've no nothing more than what I see on Twitter I don't have any special sources but it's so it's, it's entirely speculative but we've got to, what what I do know is that um we people who love peace we've got to be out there and warning about these things even if it's only 20% chance of it happening before they do it to us before they surprise us and because these are countries Britain and America that may have been responsible for the 9/11 false flag I mean if you take the argument that's very uh, prominent in the uh, in the uh, in the um, alternative media sphere and i think you yourself uh, a few years ago you followed the um, the skripal case quite closely and i think that was a the british were trying to twit the russians and tweak them and basically destroy their reputation and they had dozens of diplomats and of course they wanted to se- sever any incipient relationship between trump and the and the russians and that's always been a great fear of the british that the, the, the americans are quite isolationist and in my past, uh, I've written a couple of ebooks books about uh, the Cold War, and the, the British, the Americans, are surprisingly benign towards the Russians. That the British are much more aggressive, and they're terrified oh, yeah. of losing. Terrified of losing the American, they think they see themselves as the evil mastermind. Well, they think see themselves as a good mastermind, of course. But for the Russian perspective, they're the Moriarty, the, the you know the, the devil in Sherlock Holmes, plotting these things. But the Russians, the brain. can't do anything without American brawn so a lot of the um the the psyops and things is aimed and and demonization of Russia is aimed at an American public and they'll go along with it you know if then and of course the British will use their enormous soft power posh accents and all the rest of it to bring the Americans into war and they did that in World War I and they didn't in World War II so maybe they'll do it in world and, war 3 in Iraq
1: as well you know the 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 niger yeah. yellow cake uh, thing you know that just, right. just when just when the us was wavering a little bit i think it was uh, Hannigan had a gchq arrives with some yellow cake uh, evidence um, that came right. straight out of uh, <laughs> straight out of the right. donut uh, gchq so i mean that so two questions then here um to a to what end uh if, if if conscription is a reality or is this just a psy up to get people to back just a you know maybe more harsher uh uh military actions against uh russia in ukraine yeah. um or um it, it, i mean to what end what an occupation force in western uh ukraine uh, or just some military uh shape at home while everybody else is overseas um because they've been scaling down their military in britain as you know for like the last 20 years they've been paying people off early retirement everything so like what it just doesn't make any sense
4: i know so some commentators think it's all it's all bluff i mean there are many actors here and it's like a chess game if you like i mean if you're, a ma- if you're a master at chess, you- how many moves do you think ahead? You 10 or 15? You game these things out. If he does that, I do that. And yet, as soon as you uh, think that this sort of thing happens in national security issues, you're called a conspiracy theorist when the stakes are infinitely higher than in a chess game. So, for all I know, I, I, they could be gaming these things out. And I think that there could be, and there is a psyops element because. The Russians, the British know that the Russians know that the British do these psyops, and they're the world experts at it. They don't have an army, but they've got MI six, they've got SAS, and they're proud of it. And these are dedicated people. And uh, the British don't, and of course they've got these this large bovine population who will just believe anything they say. And 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 the sort of iron nexus between the British media and the British intelligence services is something the British exploit almost continuously, and. Um, I think that there might be this thing that if the Russians think that we are going to do this and that we're out of control and we might create a provocation, let's say uh, we create uh, a provocation in the Baltic states and pretend it's Russian. So we'll get some local Russians bust in from Ukraine, pro-Ukrainian, and cause a fight with some bolts or something. Some shooting fight no one's killed. And that's blamed on local Russians fighting for their voting rights now because they're going to vote in the Russian election, even though they're based in Estonia or whatever. OK, they might not do it, but the Russians might have worked that out as well. So the Russians are thinking, are they going to provoke us? And there'll be ten- at tensions. And I just saw that the latest TASS telegram today was that they they're warning preemptively warning the, the Balts not to mess around with Russians who want to vote in the in the Russian election, I mean, from the Russian embassy in Tallinn or whatever. And, of course, once the, 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 the Russians start saying, warning the Estonians, like a, a, a letter in the, uh, in the Post, the Times or the Telegraph, two days later, Russia intimidates Baltic states, you know, that's how it works. That's how the game works. So it could be a gigantic psyops. It also occurred to me that maybe... Some people have speculated that the British, uh, who are the sort of prime sponsors of Zelensky and so on, have, have been caught short because there's only so much special forces can do and they don't really don't have an army. So they're sort of saying, well, you know, we, because the, um, a document has leaked apparently to RIA Novosti, uh, I'm sure the Russians picked it up from one of their contacts in Eastern Europe, where sort of Russian spies there, saying that the British have been talking around this invasion plan of Western Ukraine. Um and of course, the British could hardly do it. They'd be they'd be they have what hundred less tanks and are lost in a couple of days or something. It's a ridiculously small army. But obviously, the British just want to leverage other countries. That's the main thing. That's what they do all the time. But I mean, uh, the Russians get this and 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 they'll they trumpet it out on task. The Ukrainians get wind of it, and the Ukrainians say, Well, the Russian the British are trying to get a war going, and the British are gonna say Sorry, Zelensky. We tried to get Poland to invade Western Ukraine, but psh, we couldn't get it done. So, sorry, we're going to have to abandon you. You know. So there are all these mm-hmm. games going on. Uh, I just don't yeah. know. It's 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 called yeah. gaslighting. You know. Uh, oh, there, you know, there, there's a lot of that. Yeah. yeah. Exactly.
1: The. Uh, uh, the- so the the whole downfall situation with uh the power struggle with uh Zelensky Zeluzhny, i mean it's kind of ridiculous that you're telegraphing firing your general like four exactly. different times so so clearly there's some something going on there i mean uh, Zeluzhny, the head of the Ukrainian uh, armed forces who you mentioned previously um he does command that sort of right sector uh block so you know that whole hard hard right, and, and that's actually, you know, Zelensky's only allowed to kind of stay, I think, stay in power between the British uh, close security team that guards him and then the the, the hard right, uh, and then the Nazi elements and so forth. I mean, that's keeping him sort of in power. He knows yeah. that. He is beholden to these uh, people, but if there was going to be a coup, uh, the U.S. would want to, and British would want to manage that coup, and they would prefer maybe if it's a military coup, and they started leaking out poll that that's had a higher favorability rating than Zelensky for months now and that seems to be also a prelude to setting up that tension um so mm. I, I I honestly don't know how this is going to play out because I don't think there's very good outcomes um because the the, the point is um uh Paley the, the facts on the ground haven't changed it's worse and worse for Ukraine with every yeah. passing week so that's all yeah. that's the thing that's confounding about this you know all these chess moves going on plenty of them but like mm. what about the facts on the ground the leverage mm. is just is, is is slipping away isn't it i think from from yeah, ukraine I, and, I and nato so. i
4: think i think um uh and I, I also wonder to what extent the british and the americans are on the same page because um there's what i've i, I wrote um an ebook about uh, Doug Hammerfeld, and I did a lot of research in the Suez crisis and Africa in 1960, and the British and Americans were often at loggerheads, so the special relationship is a sort of cover. That's the narrative that the British like to promote. But often, the, I, I find the Americans, everyone dumps on the Americans all the time, but and they are the power, so that's maybe that's the right thing to do, but often the British try to leverage their position all the time by being the irresponsible one, in the same way that a teenager can test the limits because he knows that there's always someone who's going to take the, the, take the hits, the adult, if you like, or something. And the Americans are more cautious. And I don't know if the Americans are, are less invested in Ukraine than the, the British were, because I think that after Brexit, the British felt that um, they were being strangled by the Germans, whatever, over Northern Ireland. And, and they were looking for a new role for Britain, you know, Great Britain in a global world. And they settled on Eastern Europe as... Their their instrument of of new British influence, because I know a lot of these journalists because I worked uh, in there in the early 1990s, people working for The Independent and The Economist and so on. And they kind of they have a lot of good contacts with, in my view, fanatical East Europeans who just want to who are only (laughs) using their EU membership to hit out. You know, I mean, it's not as if they want to live in peace with the Russians. Everyone's happy. Poland is growing, but gangbusters with this economy. These people are nurturing the resentment. Now they've got EU and NATO membership, they want to hit back and create this su- ever-ending cycle of war. So the Brits latched onto that and weaponized Ukrainian and Polish nationalism to get a, both the EU, to get the EU off their backs from their perspectives. And the EU has backed off from a British perspective over Ireland, I think, and also against their eternal enemy, the Russians, to, to make the British more significant. And what was interesting was that when when Biden met Putin in in June 21, I mean, we forget these things because history happens so fast. The British sent their HMS defender in a week later with a posse of journalists from the Daily Express and all the warmongering papers. And the Russians said, try to shoo the HMS defender off and fired shots in front of it or whatever. And the next day it was, you know, Putin, the Hitler blah, blah, blah. And these headlines had obviously been pre-confected because they were so aggressive, so coordinated. And they kind of, I mean, it happens before in history. As soon as there's a peace effort, it's that peace effort is sabotaged. And often the British mm. are doing the sabotaging, you know. I mean, they, they sabotaged. I'm trying to get a guy on my show, Philip Zelikow, who's actually quite mainstream. Mm. Uh, he wrote the 9-11 Commission. He wrote a fantastic book on how the British sabotaged a compromise peace that the Germans and the Americans Wilson was going to broker, but he was too weak and that would have ended. The war would have ended in late 1916 and he was going to hammer the British by stopping selling uh, them ammunition and loans. And the British then intelligence service got there, got a way around it and made the war last another two years. So oh, no, um, <laughs> that would have been a game
1: changer. That would have been a game changer. There wouldn't have been
4: a Russian revolution and there would have been a, a, a war. What's the word? A, a, a a negotiated peace that wouldn't have left the Germans so resentful. I mean, there wouldn't mm-hmm. have been a German revolution. There wouldn't have been a Hitler. There wouldn't have been a Versailles Treaty.
1: Yeah. And so, the, fate uh, of the, the fate of the Ottoman Empire may, may not have played out in the way that it did either.
4: Exactly. And I think the, the Americans are much, you you as somebody who's traveled between the two countries, they they discuss CIA much more much more openly and then the British discuss MI6. There are very few books discussing MI6 dirty tricks, you know, and I had some in old journalists in the mainstream, oh. yeah
1: an old British journalist from the Herald Tribune told me 20 years ago something I'll never forget he's like Pat my dear boy never forget Britain's the brains America's the muscle it's a team right. <laughs> so maybe a dysfunctional yeah. marriage at times as you can imagine but um they definitely work together America cannot do and go unilaterally without Britain uh, that soft power cover that political co- appearance of a coalition this is absolutely crucial to the United mm-hmm. States, doing what it wants to do, and Britain will also be a beneficiary of that as well. But the the, the dark horse I wanted to bring up as Scandinavia, what happened yeah, to Norway, Sweden, and Finland? They were leaned on pretty hard uh, uh, with regards to NATO in, in all the hysteria when the when the Ukraine thing kicked off and b- found themselves in this position. It doesn't make any sense. I know but it's very pro American, very pro American,
4: right across the I board. Know. What do you think? I know. About that? Well, I mean, I wrote I mean, my my career has been because I came to Sweden after a life in the in England, partly to cover Scandinavia, which was a terra incognita for for Brits and Americans. And I grew up with Sweden as, a, and you as well, as Sweden as this arbiter, the perfect society, neither red nor blue, but a white, neutral country floating above everyone else, much like Switzerland. And there's a new generation of people. But it, I mean, I think that the Swedish deep state helped in the assassination of Swedish Prime Minister Ulf Palmer who was like the Kennedy, a peacemaker, a man of... And he and he was a social democrat. I, I don't know if you know, Dirk Puhlmann, who's also host here. He's talked a lot about the Germans and uh, Herrhausen and how the Germans were outmaneuvered in their Ostpolitik. Well, the Swedes had the version of the Ostpolitik, and they that was killed. And maybe in, in many Swedish politicians know that if we approach the Russians too much, we'll end up with, with Palmer's fate. But there's also the historic 300-year-old Swedish revenge mentality about the Russians, you know. I mean, the Swedes haven't all been neutral types, but they, they and a the lot of young guns in the military. I mean, they're really they're more they're more fanatical than anyone I've ever heard. I mean, and they dominate the debate completely in Sweden. Unfortunately, there's no NATO opposition. The NATO demos in this country, anti-NATO demo, get eight people all in their 60s or above. You know, I talked to the to the head of the anti-NATO movement. His internet connection doesn't work. You know, he's 75 years old. The other main anti-NATO guy is 82 years old. No one under 50. <laughs> Is, uh it has a, has a has an insight and the Swedish SVT, Swedish television is extremely propagandistic I mean it's completely one-sided so and but i, I it's it's really tragic because I fear they they're, they're going to be next they're going to be left they're lieutenants to the British as the British British are lieutenants to the Americans so they're fully on board unfortunately and there might so. be a provocation in the Baltic Sea
1: scandinavia has always been a key balancer uh during the cold war and throughout history i mean like an essential balancing element between the west and the yeah. east and that's gone now and that really uh should scare a lot of people because you have the full militarization of the finnish border uh and also the sweden's northern territory and norway too the united states are, are, are setting up uh sovereign territories in that's all right. of these areas so that's it's right. a, it's it's a total uh, transformation,
4: I think. And what's we have watched Kaliningrad closely because obviously that's a Russian enclave on the Baltic mm-hmm. Sea, and it's now surrounded as West Berlin once was once upon a time. And you have the Swedish media and Swedish. And it's always there's always a certain kind of Swedish male in his thirties or forties or fifties, they're engineers or something, and they were and they have no historical knowledge, and they're really gung ho. I mean, they're really aggressive. And so these people who dare not talk about immigration a few years ago, because that's not what their human resources managers will allow them to talk about, are now completely sort of anti-Russian and all their friends are anti-Russian. And, 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 uh, they talk about this, uh, uh, the Baltic sea becoming a, an, a Russian where no Russian vessels will be allowed, you know? And then they talked about Danish ships, uh, D- Danish coast guards stopping Russian ships, from leaving the sound, which is the, I don't know if you know Malmo and Copenhagen connected by a bridge. And that of course, I mean, you know, is a country, the city I grew up in. So the cold war could become very hot and in, in a region which is, hasn't seen war for hun- many, many centuries. It's- It's terrible. It's really terrible.
1: And geographically, this is a very small area you're talking about. So it's not like, you know, it it won't have disastrous effects on just about everything and how many different countries will be uh, adversely affected by that. I mean, I really don't think they want to try that one on. But uh, I don't think Britain really cares. Um, The U.S. and Britain have this special disposition where they're they're removed from everything slightly enough uh, where they can sort of ride out the calamity. Isn't that always the way it's played out in history.
4: Well, exactly. The British have an, they're both island powers in that Mackinder philosophy and they'll find a, a land power to do their bidding and to the, do the dying on their behalf. So, I mean, uh, I was talking to Paul on this sh- my show the other day and he's saying, well, you know, we hate the Germans and we hate the Russians, but thankfully we've got the British when we're part of the Anglosphere. I said, listen, mate, they're if you think you're using them to, or they're rescuing you, dream again, they're using you. This like this yeah. fantasy of the British good guys, you know. They they they'll find a continental client and get them massacred and then walk walk away from it as survivors, you know. Terrible.
1: No, but, no um, it is. Well, hold that thought. Hold that thought. Paley. Yeah. We're going to go to break right now with uh, TNT. Today's news talk. I'm here right. with uh, author and also host here on the TNT network. Paley North Taylor is joining us. We're talking about the close knit geopolitics of Europe, Ukraine, the West and Russia. Where is this heading? What's happening next? Let's talk about what's going to happen next after the break. I'm Patrick Henningsen, senior host. We'll be back after these messages
0: de-weaponizing weather with reality and perspective.
1: I
3: really don't understand how this trial between Michael Mann and Mark Stein is continuing. And I don't know if Dr. Mann wanted to put his hockey stick on trial. There are so many holes in his argument, it is hard to believe. I don't even understand how people could have let that out without questioning it. And I've talked about this before. One of the biggest problems I have is he won't let anyone look at his data, at least no one that is skeptical of his data. And that should raise red flags. And I've talked about this many, many times, you can go and look at what the global temperature does. When it's warm in the eastern and central part of the United States and warm across Europe, usually the global temperature is elevated. Now, when it's cold in those areas, believe it or not, the global temperature is actually colder. The problem with his whole hockey stick and the recreation of temperatures from pine cones is, the areas he looks at and draws his ideas from are usually cold when the earth is warm. So he would not be able to detect that. He would not know that because he's not a meteorologist. If he was a meteorologist, would he know it? Of course he'd know it because we talk about this all the time. They're called teleconnections. So if I were in there talking about this, I'd be asking where is your meteorology background and are you aware of this going on? But in any case, this whole hockey stick idea of temperature recreation looks to be more of a hokey stick to a lot of us out there. And the first red flag is you wouldn't let anyone look at your data. This is TNT climate and weather watchdog meteorologist Joe Bastardi asking you to enjoy the weather. It's the only weather you've got. She used to dance and dream of a better life, a brighter future. Today, thanks to Children International and friends like you, she dances for the world, Together, we give children in poverty a chance to set their sights high and achieve their dreams. Learn more about Children International and join us in our life-changing work at children.org today.
0: You're with Patrick Henningsen on today's News Talk Radio, TNT.
1: Welcome back ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. We're still in our number one of this live broadcast. Uh, We're talking about the increasingly precarious issue of Ukraine, uh, precarious for all the stakeholders, the United States and Britain, I think being the biggest stakeholders in the West. Of course, Poland is deeply invested in this problem as well. So are the NATO countries, but nothing on the level of command and control like Washington and London. And discussing this uh, is our guest author, uh, and also host here at TNT Today's News Talk, uh, Peli Nurath-Taylor joining us on the line right now. Peli, so listen, um, the, the the bluff, the double bluff, uh, the asymmetric attacks, there's just been a mm. whole series of things that have happened over the last two years, things that would normally in in the past might have triggered a retaliation by mm. Russia. Russia seems to be... Playing their cards very close to their chest, not reacting, uh, and mm. I, I will say the Iranians uh, and others doing the same. I guess they've learned a thing or two over the years, mm. not to be baited into, not to be used as a tripwire. But uh, mm. so, 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 what's what can we expect uh, in in the near future? Do you think the twenty twenty four election cycle in the U S. is going to play into uh, what we're going to see in the next ten months with with yeah. Ukraine?
4: Yeah, well, I think um, this thing about uh, provocations at first, I think that um, in um, w- when these peace negotiations, I was talking about World War I, and when the peace negotiations were going on secretly behind the Brits' back uh, between Will- Wilson and uh, the Germans, um, it was basically uh, Kaiser Wilhelm was a moderate. He wasn't the beast of Berlin that the British press would have it, but he was a, mo- a soft guy. He's half British anyway. His mother was a, a, a daughter of Queen Victoria. And he and his um, chancellor Bethmann holbeck was another British pro British guy. He couldn't understand why the British hated them. That's that, when you read the, the German diplomatic papers. That's a, a running theme. Uh, but of course, they had people on their right, uh, Ludendorff who, and Hindenburg, who said, "You know, why aren't? You, the, how can you let them? How can you let the British humiliate you all the time when you're, you're reaching out with your peace feelers?" Uh, they are just attacking you and continuing to insult you and call you an extremist. So we're going to give you an ultimatum. If you don't get this peace deal sort of with the Americans, we are going to strangle Britain with unrestricted submarine warfare. So we, we're going to give you until, you know, 31st of January 1917. And the British knew this. I, can't, I Forgive me if I can't remember all the details about two years ago since I wrote the book, but it, that was a sort of scenario where the British had information advantage. So they knew that if they could get the the hardliners into power in in germany they would get there they wouldn't get their negotiated peace and they would get uh cuz the germans wanted to sink all ships coming into british waters and that would include american ships and everyone knew that once if once that happened the americans would be in the war and so the americans uh, the british said well once the americans are in the war we're saved and um so we don't want a negotiated peace we we don't want none of the nice guys to win we don't want peace so we're going to goad the soft guys into being so humiliated, the hardliners will take over. And that's more or less what happened. And the hardliners had miscalculated, they underestimated the Americans, and the Americans won militarily uh, the First World War. Well, what we see today is Putin, unlike what everyone is, not the Hitler. The British love to Hitlerize all their opponents. Everyone is a Hitler. Uh, but he is probably he's a, a liberal. And according to some sources, I think on the website you were part of, Alex Thompson, I think uh, he's this GCHQ guy. He said that they were Putin was a, a liberal Western British asset some at some point in the 1990s who narrowly avoided being killed when he was invited to London. I don't know if that's true, but certainly he's always had a soft spot for the West and and uh, and kind of liberal. But of course, there are hardliners. I mean, he's uh, part of Cabal. And they are all watching him closely for too many concessions uh, or too, too, and allowing his red lines to be crossed. So if he can be provoked enough or humiliated enough, they might take over and, and force a stronger reaction uh, from the Russians, which in turn might uh, unite NATO. That's what that's what I fear. And I think uh, what I, I fear is that Budanov will carry out these uh, pinprick assa- it's political assassinations in different places and keep the Russians on their toes. And um, I also worry that, um, the, that there might be some, Brit- I mean, Britain, uh, Russia, you know, the whole Russiagate hoax. I mean, it took up so much bandwidth in 2016 and 2018. And I remember listening to your show as well as Scott Horton's show and reading all those Russiagate books in all their detail about Papadopoulou and whatever. I can't remember the details, but what I remember, what my, my sort of uh, picture of the overall thing was the very strong British aspect of this which was that all the uh attempted attrapments of uh, trump's rather naive foreign policy advisors took place in london or with british assets and and it was mm. all i don't know i mean these these guys like mifsud maybe you can fill me in you know Downer, jo- yeah, Joseph stephan Steph- yeah he's at cambridge oh was ridiculous wasn't it and that this woman who was supposed to have seduced uh, mike flynn or something in cambridge you know mm-hmm. uh, her name yeah. beginning with an l ah all these crazy know, uh, things are going on yeah yeah <laughs> i know who you're talking about so yeah so, I mean, know,
1: it's, it's beyond it's beyond argument at this point Br- britain meddled in the 2016 and uh, maybe arguably the 2020 elections, but especially with the, the, the Trump transition uh, in the 2016 election, 100% the fingerprints are there. Orbis business with uh, Dear Love, Christopher Steele, the dossier, that was a right. big piece, wasn't it? That that yeah. that came straight out
4: of Britain. And they say once MI6, you never MI 6 my ass, you know, I mean, maybe, you know, he's still maybe loyal to his old uh, employers. I don't know. Uh, but I mean, one of his colleagues in Orbis was, I um, was the name Pablo Miller, who Pablo was the Miller. handler of uh, Skripal, right? <laughs> so, who, and Skripal was another operation aimed at, uh, I don't know, I can't remember all the details, but I don't. There's the, Operation Toxic Dagger going on at the same time, a sort of simulated ke- Russian chemical attack on Britain, and it actually happened, and all these anomalies, mm. as you well know. But I mean, was that a way to get to bounce a reluctant Trump into uh, into confronting Russia? I think it was some, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. That, so
1: part, partly that, plus to 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 turn the British public and the American public increasingly against Russia in preparation okay. for the war that was to come. Uh, That's right. I think right. we can look in hindsight.
4: So demonizing the Russians means they can't be trusted. So any peace deal they come up with, anything they say can't be trusted, basically. So you're knocking that sword out of their hands. And anyone who says things, I haven't been called the law whore, whore yet, but, you know, I'm sure that at some point there'll be someone on Twitter saying those things. I mean, it's, um, but, um, uh, and what else? I mean, Duma, of course, the, the chemical bat, gas attack with the white helmets and so on. And of course, let's say the Scandinavian media—they—they—they're basically like uh, local branches of the uh, of the British media. I mean, they report completely uncritically. It's rather pathetic, really. I mean, being a fanboy, the Scandinavian fanboys—they think, well, you know, John Cleese. We laugh at his comedies. The British are wonderful. They have these fantastic soap operas that dominate our TV series: Murders, Midsummer Murders, The Beatles. All this comes down. And oh, the Russians—they eat potatoes and they—they have the gulags—and it comes down to that: which country do you trust? So, unfortunately, the Swedes are totally, um, totally on the British side. I mean, I can't think of any other country except possibly the Netherlands that is so in the tank.
1: Well, you do have the, uh, you know, the Gustav uh, uh, family line and the British royal family. They are very much uh, the Swedes and the British are very intermingled on multiple levels, uh, yeah. traditionally. Yeah. <laughs> uh,
4: well, the arms so, industry was bought, the Wallenbergs and so on. Mm. Uh, oh, yeah, bought. Investor AB, the Wallenbergs. That's right. Well, listen, Sweden was
1: already implicated in this. They provided a lot of the end laws uh, that uh, blew up Russian tanks in the early days of uh, this latest round of hostilities in Ukraine. I mean, right. so Sweden was already heavily, they're already in it. They're deep, yeah, right. deeply in it at that point. Right. So um, interesting.
4: Well, I live quite near in uh, Sweden's main air ba- base it's called SF7 and uh, I hear jet fighters roaring at all hours basically and uh, I know a diplomat who lives locally a retired diplomat and he has his sources inside he said it's going to become the next Bagram. you know mark my words mm. so this is what the swedes are setting themselves up and they and they they've falling into it with open arms because they're saying well our economy needs this nato investment we need to upgrade our roads we're going to get lots of money because our the economy the economy isn't doing that well and the uh, the unemployment is one of the highest in the eu strangely enough um so they're actually looking forward to that and it gives swedes a purpose as being this bastion
1: Um, Amazing. It's amazing. It is, I think, one of the worst own goals uh, geopolitically ever. Uh, Finland and Sweden jumping headfirst into the arms of (laughs) Jan Stoltenberg on that. But, um, But before we wrap up, I want to get your last comment on an important point here. And that is. There's been a suspension of diplomacy. There are no negotiations. This has been a major feature of all of this. So I think Russia's taken this as a signal: is well, you know, Saad, you forget you guys for now. We're just going to go ahead and do what we need to do on the ground to secure our, you know, perimeter. Uh, and we'll see you later. If you want to talk to us, there's our number. Like yeah. that's a new thing, isn't it? With it, this isn't how. Uh, diplomacy has ever been done even during the cold war they had good lines of communication
4: right well I know I when I was reading I mean I, I'm sure we, we're about the same age I think we remember the Cold War in the 1980s I mean there, for for a start there was much more awareness of the nuclear danger and then I mean, there's huge demonstrations uh marches from London, uh, Paris to Stockholm and the Greenham in common and all that so people were very aware of the dangers of nuclear war and I remember I, I read uh, I did a lot of research on the early eighties and the British press and American press were quite respectful of the Russians. I mean, they, they didn't, they barely treated the Russians as an adversary. I mean, it was true reporting in the sense of Mr. Brezhnev said this and said that, and it was not, it doesn't have, didn't have that emotional, hysterical, violent, hateful tinge that it's got now. I mean, I, I, I don't know what, I mean, um, I read a bit on the history of North Africa and uh, the pretext for uh, France invading North, uh, Algeria in 1830 was the fact that the Bay of Algiers had swished the French ambassador in the face with one of those uh, fly whisks. OK, so if that is a casus belli, what isn't mm-hmm. the incessant British hate campaign against Putin for 20 years? I mean, and if he is the lunatic data, dictator everyone says he is with his finger on the nuclear button, why are they doing it if you can suddenly press that button? But anyway, I mean, so it, it, we've, we've had this um, really irresponsible uh, media-led anti-dialogue. And I, I think the diplomats, I don't know what the diplomats in, in Britain are. I think there's a new generation. I think that after the Cold War, um, anyone who was anyone left um, Russia studies and Russian diplomacy. No one spoke Russian. Terrorism became the big issue for the Foreign Office or whatever, or climate change in the Third World and all those trendy things. And the people who stayed in on the Russia Studies Department—they were the fanatics—and you and I don't know their names. We don't need to name them here. The people who've had opinion pages in the Guardian and in the Economist and, and God knows and the Telegraph—and then lunatics basically—and they've been biding their time and building up their territory. So I mean, I think that in terms of lack of detachment from reality, I mean, the, the Russia departments and the National Security departments have to compete with, let's say, Gender Studies departments. I mean, they have no footing in a, in a r- realistic assessment. And uh, so I, I mean I I went from uh, worrying about um, Islam a few years ago, Islamic fanaticism, but I mean the fanaticism we have nurtured inside our institutions, white upper middle aged men, is far worse than anything from ISIS. I think. Uh, so I mean that's a non-issue for me now, uh, you know, and and there I part company with a lot of the alternative media in Scandinavia who's still living in 2003 or whatever, and they think that. Head, the head choppers of Iran that are the main threats in the world or Saudi, I don't think so. Um,
1: yeah. So yeah. So to, uh, Britain. But and, I, sort uh, of answer,
4: I didn't answer your question directly, but uh, I, I kind of <laughs> answered it way i knew
1: (laughs) well it's it's an ongoing conversation uh uh peli so i think i think hopefully we can continue this i think this is a key dialogue uh in trying to decipher what's going on uh we really Mm. appreciate you uh your time this week coming on to this program uh and give a shout out to your
4: program as well how can people hear it when do you broadcast well it's between 12 and one weekdays one and two european time and i deal with geopolitics uh assassinations uh You know, the insurrections in Europe, the AFD, deep states and also things like longevity and uh, vaccines a little bit, a mixed potpourri of interesting things. So uh, I hope you can tune in and and, uh, watch it. It's every day, every weekday and I have two guests on.